Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to another Monday edition of our live devotionals working through the F260 Bible reading plan. Um, it's good to be here with you this morning. Those of you who were at church yesterday got to hear Paul Scogland, um, one of the elders at the church, preach for us. We, we had a positive COVID test in our house uh, last week, and so we are um, on the DL for a season. We're not quite sure where we got it from. We've been pretty vigilant and haven't had any close contacts um, that we know of who have uh, told us that they had it and were around us. Um, but the good news is is that uh, we were, by God's grace, really lucky with some uh, relatively minor symptoms, and uh, all of us are doing well. Um, we haven't had any symptoms for uh, almost uh, five days now. And so... Um, Thank you guys for caring. Got some texts yesterday after church, um, but the good news is, even though I can't be with you from the pulpit or at church, here I am uh, via the modern magic of technology, and uh, I'm, I'm glad to be in this text with you guys today. We are in 2 Corinthians 9 and 10. There's kind of a <clears throat> excuse me, a unique contrast between those two texts. Uh, in fact, some people think that chapters 10 through 13 were... Um, Paul had like written his letter, you know how sometimes you write a letter and you want to just let it breathe for a little bit. Um, he wrote chapters one through nine, kind of let it breathe and then heard more of what was going on in the Corinthian church and then added chapters 10 through 13. So there's kind of a contrast between these two chapters, um, but that's okay. It doesn't disrupt us from reading it as a unit. And that's what we're going to do today. Uh, and again, if you're just joining us, the whole point of these, this is not an in-depth Bible study. Um, I did not have time to do a Bible study on this. This isn't uh, me teaching you how to do uh, what, what we like to call inductive uh, Bible studies. This is kind of just modeling what it looks like for us to look at our devotions in the morning and to put a little extra thought into our time in God's Word besides just reading it and checking it off a list. And we do that um, by uh, kind of asking uh, or looking three places in the text. We look up, what does this text teach us about God, the gospel, Jesus? We look in, what does this text teach us about ourselves, about our own hearts, hearts of our neighbors, um, our, our needs, our strengths. And then lastly, we look out, how does this text change the way we live as Christians, as church members, as moms, as dads, roommates, yada, yada. And so um, just we, we typically start with a summary. And the big summary is in chapters 9, Paul is uh, talking with the church in Corinth about their generosity in giving um, to kind of the missions movement of the church in the early day. And uh, at this point, he's been kind of comparing and contrasting um, the church in Corinth and the Macedonian church. The Macedonian church uh, was encouraged by the Corinthians' generosity and the Corinthian church is being encouraged by the Macedonian church's generosity. And there's some interplay back between those two. Both these churches are kind of uh, west of where the church started in Jerusalem. And they're both giving generously to support the uh, missionary efforts of the church that's kind of based in Jerusalem. At this point, the church that's, that's funding Paul's missionary journeys. And so we read a lot about generosity, some maybe famous quotes that you've heard on generosity. God loves a cheerful giver. Um, that is uh, 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7. Um, and uh, then in chapter 10, we see Paul defending his ministry. And we'll talk more about uh, why he's defending that and, and what that means here in a minute. Um, but basically, he is justifying his right to write to the church 
and to write them some of their some of this hard stuff. If you've been following along with us in the Bible reading plan or just through the podcasts or devotionals on Wednesday, you've noticed that Paul is writing to the church in Corinth and he's calling them believers and he's assuming their salvation. This is a church that's got a lot of issues. Um, they need God's grace in a lot of ways. And uh, Paul is writing to basically say, hey, hey, this is not great, but the good news is the gospel can help you. Um, God's grace is really sufficient to help those struggling in sin to put off sin and to put on Christ. Um, but in that, there's some hard words. Uh, in 1 Corinthians, uh, he talks about church discipline a lot. And, and here in 2 Corinthians, he's assumed that they have disciplined. And he says the punishment of the majority is enough to now welcome this person back into your midst because they've repented. But also today you see um, some strong words again at, in chapter 10 where he says uh, this, he says, uh, we're ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. And so uh, he's pushing pretty hard on this church and the church has these other influences in the area because Paul's not in Corinth right now. That's part of the why Corinth is struggling is because Paul hasn't visited in a while. And these other influences are trying to undermine um, Paul's right, Paul's authority, Paul's care for the church. And so in chapter 10, he is defending his ministry. He's boasting in the ministry that God has given him um, to call the Corinthian church to heed his message and to continue growing in the gospel as he has delivered it to them. So that's kind of the summary of what we see. And so uh, I really enjoyed my time in God's word this morning. I feel like that could just be copied and pasted. Uh, and not, I'm not going to lie. Every Monday morning to get up uh, a little earlier to spend a little more time in this text to get ready for this is not something that is high on my priority. Uh, or it's high on my priority because I'm here to do it. But it's something where in my flesh, curled up in my bed on a cold fall morning, I'd rather stay in bed. Um, but I'm always rewarded to do this. And I hope you are too. And so when we look up there's two things we see in this text, and both of them have to do with God's gift. I think there's a massive tone of generosity, not just in chapter 9, but, but through chapter 10 as well. And so we see two things here. We see God's generosity in the gospel, and we see, we see God's gift of generosity in the gospel, and we also see God's gift of authority in the gospel. And so when we look at God's gift of generosity in the gospel, um, we see that as Paul is making this appeal for generosity in the Corinthian church, every appeal he's making to generosity has as its foundation, has as its primary motivation, has as its chief experience the generosity Christ has had on us in the gospel. This is what he says in uh, chapter 9, verses 7 through 9. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things and at all times, you may abound in every good work. So there, something important, is this generosity, this act of Christian giving. All Christian giving is missionary giving. All Christian giving is not to, to just... Um, pad church budgets uh, because the ministry of the church is to expand the fame of God's name. Everything given to Christian efforts is things given to the missionary cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But now he says this, um, and all of those giving, sorry, I lost my train of thought. All of that, all of that giving is part of God's good work that he desires his salvation to produce in his saints. But now he says this, as it is written, he has distributed freely He has given to the poor. 
his righteousness endures forever. And so they're on the tail of doing all of these things, all of the sufficiency. Uh, did you notice all of the all language? He's made all grace abound to you, having all sufficiency in all things at all times. Why? How, why? how do we have such a pervasive power for generosity? Right? I understand we're in the middle of a COVID pandemic. Many of you have perhaps had hours reduced or jobs lost. or uh, uh, There's probably no one who has been unaffected financially by the season we are in. And yet here is, according to Paul, something that in all times equips us for generosity. And what is that? It's the gospel of Jesus. Jesus has distributed freely. Jesus has given to the poor. Jesus's righteousness endures forever. And so there we see, um, there's kind of this twofold uh, inclusion here in the gospel. First, in, in the righteousness that Jesus gives us, clothing us with his righteousness. That's his saving righteousness. Um, we are unrighteous. Jesus is righteous. When he gives us that righteousness, that righteousness gives us the ability to give because the only thing we need to survive in this world is righteousness. That's what sin causes us to lack. Sin doesn't make us lack money. Sin doesn't make us lack health. Sin makes us lack, lack righteousness. And without righteousness, no one will see God. But Jesus has generously provided that which we need in his own blood, in his righteousness. And so having Jesus' righteousness immediately takes our hands, um, which can, you've heard the, the monkey trap, right? Uh, I don't know if this is real, um, but every preacher seems to do this, use this illustration where the, some tribal people somewhere catches monkeys by, you know, drilling a hole in the in a coconut and they put like uh, something, uh, like a pebble or something in the coconut and the monkey wants to um, get the thing. And so they put their hand into the coconut and they grab onto the pebble and they try to get it out but once the monkeys have made a fist it's too big to fit through the hole and so they have the coconut kind of tied to a tree and the monkey sits there and won't let go and the 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 villagers come up and dunk the monkey on the head and they get it all of our life is spent as a monkey grasping a pebble in a coconut um, until the the righteousness of jesus comes and then we can let go we realize we don't need that anymore because christ has provided something that truly satisfies so that's uh, one, Christ's righteousness frees us to give. But then secondly, Christ's righteousness motivates us to give. This righteousness is not only um, this ontological, or in other words, this saving force which saves us. It's also this saving force which regenerates us to do righteous things, to do those good works that we see in verse 8. And so when we've been saved by Jesus, Jesus frees us to pursue righteousness in every area of our life. And that includes, you know, putting off sin, changing the way we talk, and changing the way we give. Generosity is part of the good works of righteousness, which Jesus frees us to do. Everything that God calls you to do in generosity has been given to us and, and imbued in a motivating way towards us through Jesus Christ. Christians do not start the work of giving from a neutral playing field. We start the work of giving from having received the massive generosity of the gospel in Jesus Christ. And in the Western world, that is often one of the hardest things to understand because we elevate things to priorities um, that are sometimes hard. Like this text is often taken as the prosperity gospel text because he says after this, he says, you know, God's going to provide. He who, so, who reaps um, uh, generously will, or he who sows generously will reap generously. But what does that look like? Does that look like God giving us a bigger house with multiple garage stall, stalls and a high definition TV? He says, no, it looks like seed to the sower and bread for food, <laughs> um, right? God will provide the basic things to us. Um, and so we don't need to worry about generosity. No one gives themselves into poverty. 
Um, but we, we can give our, and that's not to say you won't be impoverished or that Christians don't live in poverty, but it means that Christians can trust God to provide what we actually need to survive. Um, so long as we're trusting in him. And so that's what we see in, uh, this generosity talk here. And this is really important because Christians kind of have this mindset. Um, and we look to the old Testament, no one wants the law until it comes to the old Testament and everyone wants the law because the old Testament gives us something quantifiable 10%, right? The Israelites were to give 10% as a tithe. That's what tithe means to the Lord. Um, but what's interesting is that was not the only thing the Israelites gave. If you read the old Testament, um, the Israelite lifestyle was typified by what are called free will offerings. That is they become so enthralled with the glory of God's deliverance that they give more than a 10th. The 10th is constant. The 10th is, is like the utility bill they pay to fund the temple, but they give out of worship in other areas. And so the Jews gave more than 10% as a rule. And what we see is if the Jews did that, only looking at the shadows of redemption that we now have in the substance of Jesus, how much more should we as Christians give far more than that? And we're going to come back to that point in a little bit. But we see God's gift of generosity in the gospel. If there's no gospel, generosity is a coerced extortion, as Paul talks about in this text. But because of what Jesus has done, if you're hearing this and you feel led to give uh, and there's guilt there, you're still not understanding this. You're not understanding what Jesus has done in the gospel to save you, to provide for you so that you might be able to encourage others as well. Um, and then we have God's gift of authority in the gospel. And this is chapter 10. And listen to uh, how Paul speaks in verses 13 through 14. But we will not boast beyond our limits. We will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us to reach even to you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you. For we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel. And so what Paul is saying here is, um, uh, I want to make sure I read what I wanted to read. Yes. Uh, what he's saying there is these, um, uh, they're called super apostles. And these super apostles are the people who are living their best life now. These are the apostles who have the really uh, attractive styles of ministry, who aren't being persecuted, um, who are really gifted in speaking. And generally, they're not proclaiming the true gospel of the Lord. They're proclaiming kind of their own power. And what they're doing is they're saying, look at Paul. Paul can't even come to you. Does Paul even care about you? Paul's being persecuted. We're not being persecuted. Why would you listen to a guy whose gospel leads you? excuse me, to persecution. Uh, listen to us. And these super apostles are undermining the gospel, undermining the work of the of, of Paul and Peter and, and James and John and all of those things. Um, but Paul here says, no, 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 no. Like we came to you with the gospel. We, we were the first missionaries to come to you, to preach the gospel to you. And when you've received that gospel, that gives us every authority in your life to call you back to gospel faithfulness, to even discipline you, right? That's what he's talking about um, in verse six. And, and what does that mean for us? It means that when we've received the gospel, the true gospel of God, um, it validates us to be both ministered to and to be ministers of, right? The gospel calls us to call people to hard things, but when the gospel reigns in our heart, it forces us to take every thought captive to Jesus Christ, right? So that, that's what he says in verse Five. This gospel, which was preached, um, destroys arguments of every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and takes every thought captive to obedience through Jesus. And so the gospel, as if we think of ourselves as ministers, um, it pulls us to hard places where we might want to pull back from challenging um, those to whom God has given us ministry in the gospel. 
But the gospel pushes us forward and says, no, 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 you have, you've been qualified for this. The gospel calls you to do just this. God gave you this ministry. And then also we think of us as those being ministered to two. It means when we have brothers and sisters who lovingly and faithfully come and call us to obedience, um, that they do actually have an authority in our life. That's what church membership is all about. It's saying, no, if we are bound together on the ministry of this gospel, which saves, which has clear markers of Christianity, clear uh, boundaries of conduct, they have every right to call us back to God's grace with pleading, with discipline, with prayers, and with encouragement. And so the gospel proclaimed validates the gospel practice. It gives authority in the life of a believer because the gospel is authority. The gospel puts us under God's authority. And so that's what we see in looking up. We see God's gift of generosity in the gospel and God's gift of authority in the gospel, which creates a, a culture of both ministers and those who need to be ministered to. Uh, looking in, uh, there's two things I have here. There's a lot. We're, we're going fast um, here, but I, I love this text. Uh, there's two things. One is the need for an all-around ministry, and then secondly is the astounding effectiveness of generosity. And I love this passage in today's world when we look at a need for an all-around ministry because look at how Paul is talking um, to his people in chapter 10, verse 1. I, Paul, entreat myself to you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble when face-to-face with you, but bold towards you when I am away. And so he's writing about, like, when I am with you, I'm kind. But when I'm writing to you, when I'm not there and I'm writing words on a page, I'm bold towards you. Look also at verses 9 through 11. I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters, for they, that's the super apostles criticizing Paul, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak, and his speech is of no account. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. And so what? why is this so fascinating to me? I think it's because Paul is acknowledging um, the limitations of uh, the medium. Now, God's word is inspired, and the Holy Spirit indwells God's word uh, in, to do all that. So I'm not talking about the, the sufficiency of scripture in this sense, but I'm saying Paul knows that words on a page um, are helpful, capable, and when inspired by the Holy Spirit, wholly sufficient to do exactly what God wants them to do. And yet, Christians are not meant to minister only in word. There's this presence that Paul understands that if all he's doing is writing, um, that there's going to be this point of tension between him and the church in Corinth. He's saying, I'm writing to you firmly because I want to make sure you understand this. But if I was there with you, I would speak just as firmly to you, but it would be couched in this care, um, right? They're talking about this weakness um, that Paul has when he's present with them. And that weakness is the ability to say the hard things he's saying in print, but also to couch it with the personal touch of grace and to say, I know this is hard, but we are here for you. This is for God's good. It includes um, the brotherly kiss, the embrace of another brother or sister in kindness and in empathy. And I think this is really important for us because um, what Paul is not doing is he is not not saying hard things because he understands the limitations of the medium, right? He's not not saying hard things because he's like, well, they're not going to get it because it's in print and I'm not there to, you know, give them a high five to make them feel better. He is saying those hard things 
But then what he's doing is he's saying, I understand this is hard and I want so badly to be there with you to help you understand. So I want you to know I care for you and I understand how hard that is when you can't see my reaction and I can't see your reaction. And so he's writing that in. And I think for Christians, when it comes to um, a world which is becoming increasingly flattened, right, especially in COVID-19, even when we see each other face to face, we are edited um, to a sense like, I'm just wearing uh, shorts under this. I don't, I'm not fully dressed yet for the day. Um, I, and, uh, and we present a certain aspect to people which is devoid of a personal relationship. And we need to be wise that sometimes when we are helping believers follow Jesus through texts, through emails, um, it is just wise to say, I know this is really hard right now to understand and I might feel like I'm coming off really strong um, but I want you to understand this, but also, you know, I'm here with you in this. My desire is not to just lambast you with words. Um, but if I could come to you right now, uh, I would want that. I want you to feel my relational warmth. And in this world, like Paul right now, there are some times where you can't come to people. There are people hurting or people who are at risk who we, we actually cannot go to them right now in a way that is loving and caring. Um, but for most of us, there are still ways where just because it's easier to contact people on social media um, or Facebook or texting where we ought to, Paul here would make every attempt to go and be with these people. And so in our ministry, we should remember um, that, that sometimes being present um, in talking on our feet, it doesn't allow us to be the most thoughtful. And that's what, you know, thinking and, and writing someone a letter, writing someone a text allows us to actually get our thoughts in order um, and to write. But sometimes if we're just writing to people, uh, we devoid ourselves of that relational comfort that we can imbue to them as well. And so here we see this all around ministry where Paul wants to be there in word and in person to care for them. And I think that's really important for us to understand. We are people meant to be cared for by people. And that includes both what is written and it also includes where we are present. And then secondly, we see the astounding effectiveness of generosity. Um, listen to what generosity does in verses 11 through 15. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. See, how good is it to be generous? You'll be enriched in every way when you're generous in every way. Which through us, that is through the generosity that we have, listen to what it says, will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgiving to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for this inexpressible gift. So what is this gift he's talking about in generosity? Generosity does two things. One, it meets the needs of human people. God doesn't need our money, but the church does, right? God doesn't need currency, um, but the bills it takes to uh, plant a church in Mozambique does need money. And so... Our giving helps support those missionary ventures of the church. But then secondly, and more importantly, in the context of this, your giving 
actually produces many thanksgivings to God. Your giving is meant to produce thanksgivings to God, many thanksgivings to God. It encourages others. Our giving meets a physical need, but more importantly, it meets a spiritual need. It glorifies God where we are showing what Christ has loosed us from. We can let go of the pebble and of coconut, and we can do so because Jesus has richly entered our hearts with his righteousness. But then secondly, um, when people receive that, they are they receive this physical gift, which ultimately, and, and I could speak from my experience, actually reminds us of God's abundant grace. We become thankful not to Dave who wrote us a check, but to God who so motivated Dave to write us a check. Um, and I know this is something in our building fund, God has met our needs. So um, there, there's, there's a lot to do still. And it's hard for me to um, pray for my heart. It's hard for me to to not focus on what has not been provided and, and instead to worship at what has been provided. But I could tell you there have been times we've gotten checks from people who have not been in our church in years or people who are believers at other churches. And when I get those, uh, it could be a check for $5 or $500. And I am overwhelmed that God has so motivated someone to care about God's mission here at Sovereign Hope. And when we do that in other people's lives, in the lives of the missionaries we support, in the lives of the GCF staff we support, in the lives of our um, brothers and sisters who might have financial need in our own church, what we're doing is we're not just meeting a need. We are reminding them. We are actually bringing the closeness of the generosity of Jesus to them in a tangible way. Um, what you do with your money, God does in astounding ways to explode that effect all the more. So why wouldn't we want to trust God um, with that? Um, so that's what we see with the astounding generosity uh, of the church is that we should do it. We should just do it. It's connected to righteousness. It's connected to what Jesus has done and it blesses everybody. Why do we think that it will honor God? It will bless those around us and yet it will be painful to us. Um, I don't know, but that's where we need grace. And that's where in looking out, there's two things I want to talk about here in our closing minutes is first the decision of generosity. Um, Paul used a word that kind of stopped me in my tracks today when he said this, um, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion for God loves a cheerful giver. Um, that word, each should give as he has decided in his heart, um, was striking to me. Because how many times do we view kind of the, uh, the casual needs of generosity? Perhaps how much we give to our church, how much we give to missionaries or church planners, how much we give to those around us. And it's kind of um, an afterthought for us, right? We, we do think of it to a degree. Um, but what he's saying is our generosity, all of our generosity, what we give and what we don't give, is an afterthought to what our heart has already decided. Your heart today has made a decision um, on generosity, which what we see in verse nine, which follows, is actually a decision on the gospel. Your heart is deciding how wonderful God's grace is to you in Jesus Christ. And from that decision, it's deciding what generosity looks like. And I don't think there's anything really actionable for this, even though we're looking out, right? How does this change the way we live? But I want to, I want to, to have a talk with my heart, to have a talk with my wife as we look at our budget and to say, what is my heart deciding? And do I need to slap up my heart a little bit? Is my heart deciding out of the abundance of Jesus Christ to do this wonderful gift, right? To cheerfully and decidedly give to the cause of the gospel because it's going to honor God. It's going to cause rejoicing and worship in those around us. And I know that God will meet my needs as well. 
And so I think that was um, really important. What is a, what is my heart decided to give as a response to what Jesus has decided to give to us, right? Jesus didn't willy-nilly come and give us grace. Jesus was decided to do so. He did so because it pleased the Father, and he understood that this was what he was called to do in this covenant of redemption. We ought to have the same decision uh, in our generosity as well. But then secondly, um, I think what's really encouraging is we see the engagement of encouragement um, of Paul. If you remember, this Corinthian church is a complete disaster. They are all over the place with sin issues. And yet here, Paul is encouraging them because they have a zeal to give. This church, despite everything that's going on, is actually excited to give to the cause of ministry. Now, here's the issue. This church is excited to give, and yet they've made no plans to do so. It's in such complete disarray. And he contrasts this actually in chapter 8 um, with the, uh, the church in Macedonia, where they were less excited to give but they actually made plans to do it. They actually already have this collection happen um, and uh, uh, weren't as zealous. And they're actually encouraged by the Corinthians' zealousness. But, but now Paul is saying, yeah, you're zealous. You're excited to do this, but your life is so disorganized. You need to make a plan to do it. And I think for many of us, we like this idea of generosity, but have we made a plan? Has our heart decided to actually do this? And here, um, what Paul is doing is he's encouraging them for what only God can do. It's only God who can give them this kind of zeal for generosity, this excitement, this cheerfulness in giving. But his encouragement is so precise that it's actually encouraging them to engage and act on what is um, what God is doing. And I think for us, it's easy to just softly encourage people and to say, hey, you're doing really great here. And that's good. But when we are encouraging people, we should want to only encourage what we want to see repeated. We should want to only encourage what God is genuinely doing in the lives of those who are around us so that they might do it more and more. And so I think of with my kids or with my wife or with people in my church, um, is my encouragement actually leading them to engage? Or is it just kind of, you know, these softball kind of um, spiritual butt slaps? Um, uh, that's a, a football term. That's weird if you don't understand the context of it. Um, uh, this good game uh, uh, butt slap to say, yeah, you're doing great. Um, but is it actually leading them to do more? Or is it just, you know, satisfying them that they're pleasing you. And I think, what, what could this look like? This looks like with my son, uh, I often say, oh, and I'm so encouraged to see how strong you're getting, right? He comes and works out with me in our garage. And, and I'll often say something like this, like, and I am so excited to see how you will use your strength to help others. And what I'm doing is I'm encouraging him, but I'm also showing him uh, what's the end for that? Where Where is that going to show up more and more? And here Paul is saying, I'm so encouraged by your zeal and I am excited, wink, wink, for you to get your collection in order so that we can take it and it's not an extortion on you. <laughs> like be ready to give these funds when my messengers come to you. And so what does it look like in your life to encourage people in a way where they are not just, they don't just feel good about themselves, but they are excited to continue to show these gifts of grace. Because what we encourage are things that only God can do. We're not, we're ultimately, not encouraging someone because they're super. We're encouraging someone because they've received this grace from God in the gospel that is manifesting itself in wonderful decision-making for the glory of the kingdom. And so let's work on encouraging others in a way where they want to more and more act um, and execute the things that they're encouraged of. So that's what I have today. Um, let me pray for us, and uh, hopefully you guys can Find some immediate opportunities to, to question the decisions of your heart and to encourage people to a point of engagement this week. Uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that you have provided richly and abundantly for us in the gospel. Lord, we pray that before we look 
um, to how to encourage others before we look um, to how to give to others. We both look uh, or we look at how you have given to us, how you have encouraged us in the gospel. And that becomes the, um, the never-ending fountain, the surplus upon which everything else is based. Lord, as we think of our own church and the needs we have financially, when we think of the missionaries we support as a church, we think of our um, brothers and sisters in discipleship or our kids or our spouses who need encouragement to engage more faithfully. We pray that we do all of this um, out of an overflow of the gospel. We love you, Lord Jesus. We pray you're honored um, in our response to your word today. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, thanks guys for joining us today. Um, Don't forget to check out the live devotional on Wednesday where you can participate in this discussion as well. And we'll see you later.